RadioInfluence.com. You are sitting ringside with David Penzer on Radio Influence. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another edition of City Ringside. My name is David Penzer, and as always, we are so happy that you are here to listen to this thing we call a podcast. Excited, excited, excited for this week's guest. I almost blew the booking when uh, I was trying to bug him this past uh, Tuesday. I called him, I texted him a couple of times, and uh, he was... was, Send me a text back. He's like, do you mind? I'm at my daughter's college graduation. I want to celebrate. And I'm like, oh, crap. Depends who you bug people. So, uh, but he was nice enough to uh, to jump on uh, a couple of days later. And I'm talking about Hacksaw Jim Duggan. Uh, great storyteller, great career. And um, uh, he had, uh, is going, embarking on a Canadian coast-to-coast tour. Uh, it's going to last almost a whole month. And uh, he does uh, comedy shows. Uh, he tells stories like he's going to tell here. And does Q&As and poses for pictures. And... Um, uh, if you want to know the dates, if you live in Canada, uh, hit them up on uh, Twitter or uh, Facebook or Instagram. I think it's at Official Hacksaw, but uh, uh, great stuff, and uh, he tells great stories, as I'm hoping he will for about an hour today on this podcast. Speaking of Twitter, hit me up on Twitter if you haven't already, at David Penzer, all one word. And uh, at Penzer Ringside is the podcast. Uh, love to hear from you guys. We've got a... Uh, Got a tweet from just a couple days ago from J.J. Sins. I think that's a working name, at J.J. Sins. David Penzer, love, sitting ringside. It's become my new favorite podcast. Thanks for the awesome content. J.J., thank you for listening, and thank you for the kind words. Uh, if you or anybody else enjoy what you uh, listen to and enjoy the content, all we ask is that you help spread the word. Tell your friends. Uh, be sure to subscribe if you haven't already, and if you could leave a review on the platform you listen at, please do that as well. So without further ado, let's get right to it. One of the greatest storytellers, WWE Hall of Famer, Hacksaw Jim Duggan City Ringside. Thrilled, ladies and gentlemen, to be joined this week on City Ringside by a WWE Hall of Famer and a true legend in this business, one of the nicest guys as well. And I, that term gets overused a lot. Uh, I'm the first one to admit that, but uh, the truth is the truth. And um, he will be uh, doing his comedy tour, telling stories just like he will be uh, uh, here on the podcast uh, in Canada coming up real soon. So be sure to check out uh, Hacksaw Jim Duggan on Twitter, Instagram or Facebook, and if you live in Canada, be sure to go see him because he has a thousand and one stories, and we hope to hear maybe ten of them. Uh, Jim, welcome to City Ringside. Really appreciate your time. Well, my pleasure, David, but you know, the first thing old Hacksaw's got to do is give a big <laughs> ho! Kind of fires me up. You know, get the old Hacksaw going now. There you go. I knew that was I knew that was coming. I think every everybody's just start off the morning with a good ho. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Uh, no comments on that. You just, just got to be careful hoeing in New York, I found out over the years. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Very rarely am I speechless on this podcast, but it uh, just happened. So, so, um, so hey, I was—I've known you for a while, uh, and I knew that you were big—that uh, you were a football player and wrestler in in in, um, in New York. Uh, 
But I didn't realize, and I even wrote here, if people get paid as youth athletes, you would have been a millionaire by age 18. Really impressive uh, <laughs> high school accomplishments. Letterman in football, basketball, track, and wrestling. As, as somebody who, whose son played uh, high school football, h- how did you how did you fit all that stuff in? Or did they were you just so good they let you go work around it? Well, you know, back then you could play other sports. Nowadays, kids just kind of specialize. They have spring training. They have off-season training. You know, back then you, you played the, the three sports uh, during the year. And uh, football was my main sport. And uh, I uh, just did basketball one year, and then I made the move to wrestling where I, my senior year I won the state, the New York State heavyweight wrestling title uh, undefeated. And the guy I beat uh, ended up winning the Pan Am Games uh, that next year. So, wow. uh and my shot put record, believe it or not, still stands today from 1973. I'm like, get those kids some Cheerios up there in Glens Falls. Something's going on 40 <laughs> years ago, uh, you know, or longer now. It's, uh, I, I uh, had the shot put. And uh, so I was lucky enough to be highly recruited by Ohio State, Penn State, Syracuse. Uh, but I ended up going to Texas and playing my college football for uh, Southern Methodist University. Which worked out great because that's where, just by a fluke, I met Fritz von Erich. You know, you're really good at this interview thing because you just like, I had like the first five bullet points, you just knocked them out in one answer. Uh, so you met. Oh, no, yeah, we can elaborate. We'll elaborate. <laughs> no, no. Because, that, uh, yeah, I'd like to, you know, uh, I wasn't really a wrestling fan growing up. You know, I was really, uh, actually, I live on the farm if you hear one of my roosters go. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I wasn't really a wrestling fan going up. I thought I'd play football my whole life, you know, at least for 10 years in the NFL. And I went to the Atlanta Falcons in 1977. And uh, during preseason, I got injured. I had two knee surgeries. I came back in 78. You know, I was a dime a dozen, barely hanging on as an offensive guard. Boom, they cut me. I went up to Canada. I was playing with the Toronto Argonauts for a short time with uh, Forrest Gregg, who was a head coach up there. I was playing for Forrest, and then uh, I, I thought I had a good game against the Hamilton Ticats. <laughs> I went in the office. I thought they were like, uh, give me. I, I thought they were going to give me a bonus. They gave me my walking papers. Oh, geez. They have a, a limit on a limit on Americans up there. You know, you right. We have, I think, it was fifteen on a team. But but anyway, that that actually worked out great because uh, I gave Fritz a call. I went down to Dallas. Uh, Fritz gave me that huge gift of opening the door to professional wrestling for me. Because back then, David, as you know, it was a very closed business. Now everybody knows a wrestler. Everybody's working on the indie scene. you know. But back then, it was a very closed, closed business. And for Fritz to open that door and pull back the curtain and allow me to come in, because it's usually it was kids or some other connection of guys to get in the business. Uh, Fritz took a gamble and was bringing me in. That's awesome. So did he actually train you, or, or if not, who did? David Manning, of all people. David Manning? Yeah, David, was, David Manning. I, I give David all, all the credit. And well, Gary Hart gave me my first pair of trunks. I had red and black trunks, and uh, I wrestled as big Jim Duggan here. <laughs> I, I didn't know have a clue what I was doing. I, did. I, I just hit the ropes a few times, learned some basic stuff. And I used to travel uh, with a gorgeous Gino, God bless him, who they're doing a special on now. Uh, the, uh, but I got along real well with Gino Hernandez. And I used to travel with Gino all over. And one night his tag team part 
or didn't show up. And they're like, kid, you got your gear. And I learned early in my business. And I tell all the kids nowadays, always bring your gear. <laughs> and, uh, boom, sure. I was in the ring and started working. Yeah, I actually watched that documentary last night. David Manning's all over it. And uh, uh, Gino Hernandez is uh, back back in the news. Did you? So you know him real well. Were, were uh, any anything that surprised you? Have you seen the documentary? No, I, I haven't watched it. I watched the one about Brody, and Brody was a huge influence in my life, and I wish I didn't watch it. It gave me a sick feeling. But, uh, Gino... Again, like Brody, I don't think I'll watch it after after watching Brody's. I don't think I'll watch Gino. He, he was a, a good friend. I mean, he took me under his wing. You know, back then, uh, you know, like I came out of a football background. I'm used to people being nice to me and doing stuff for me. College football, you know, all the alumni would, you know, slip you some money and all that. <laughs> Oakland, God bless him, man. Oakland used to say, yeah, Duggan took a cut and pay to leave SMU and go to the Falcons. <laughs> But, you know, coming into wrestling, I didn't know what was going on. And uh, Gino kind of took me under his wing. And the guy had everything. He was gorgeous. He was an extremely handsome guy. So he had all the women you can imagine. Uh, he had a lot of money. Uh, you know, he was just a popular guy. He, he, this was back in, you know, a Disco Inferno, Saturday Night Fever days. And we would go to discos. And, of course, nobody talked to me. But Gino, man, he was he was styling. He was a, a, a fun guy. But he had a lot of heat with people, too. He had a lot of heat with the boys. Because, you know, working just part-time and making more than anybody. He would do the Houston show once a week and probably make the highest paid guy on the roster. Sure. Um, yeah, if you didn't like the Brody one, I wouldn't suggest you watching the Gino one. It's a lot of great stuff at the beginning, but then it got kind of heavy. Uh, yeah, well, Gino, you know, that bustle, he was a drug addict there at the end. I mean, it went full circle with him. When I was finally working at Mid-South, uh, Gino came through the territory, and he was really, really struggling with drugs. And he stayed with me back then. Uh, almost actually got in a lot of trouble with that police game or another wrestler uh, not sure exactly who I don't want to talk about past, but he put his hands on a woman so they called the police we all lived in one apartment complex we all lived in the same complex so all the coppers they all came to my door pounded on my door and they come in you know and like, I'm like no everything's cool here <laughs> and poor Gino he's in the, uh, the next room just all loaded up with everything but uh, they, they, they left looking for a uh, that oh never mind <laughs> <laughs> you know you mentioned that and i and that, that 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 name that you never said just came to mind i don't know why, how that is uh yeah. uh but um yeah i i watched it, some of the i hadn't watched really uh any gino stuff not to harp on gino but it's topical now and and i couldn't help but wonder what a four horseman with gino hernandez in it would have looked like oh wow yeah really that yeah he he would fit into that really well uh, but, you know, I think, yeah, I believe he went up to New York and he just had so much heat up there that he came back to Houston. And, you know, there was a rumor he was Paul Bosch's uh, illegitimate son and all that. But whatever it was, you know, a lot of guys didn't like Gino, but I got along with him. But, of course, I get along with a, a lot of the, I get along with Jake, I get along with the knobs. <laughs> so there's a pattern I noticed. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Nobs. I didn't even put him down to talk about. We got to definitely talk about Nobs. Hey, you mentioned Mid-South Wrestling. You got your big break there. Um, how was it working for Bill Watts? I know he was somewhat of a uh, dictator, so to speak, uh, as a promoter. Yeah, he was, but he liked uh, big guys. He liked tough guys. You know, Steve Williams, uh, 
Hercules Hernandez, junkyard dog. Like, yeah, I got along good with him. He, uh, he, he, he was a bully, though. He was definitely a taskmaster. But that's why you see so many of the WWE Hall of Fame guys came through Mid-South. Because, you know, you wrestle 10 to 12 times a, a week. You do an individual interview for every city. And, and if watch didn't like it, you would do it again. So you really learned your trade. Because that's the only way to get better, spending time in the ring in front of people. I mean, you can learn mechanics in a gym. But if you want to learn to work, you got to be in front of people. It doesn't have to be 100,000 people. It could be 20 people. But just get that feel for working in front of people. Sure, I know the church. Was, I mean, he, Go ahead. He was just a taskmaster. So, yeah, I know uh, it was a tough territory, 3,000 miles a week. You know, was, we were all young guys, so uh, go ahead, brother. No, I was going to mention the long drives. Uh, I, I remember uh, Pee Wee Anderson broke me in, and he uh, started in that territory, and he would tell me about the, the long 400, 500-mile drives each way. Who, who are, You know, it's important to, on these drives, especially before there was cell phones and all that, to, to, you know, be able to have fun and tell stories. And so who were, I was wondering who were some of your favorite people back then in uh, Mid-South to drive with? I, I, Steve Williams. Uh, Doc was one of my best friends in my life, uh, and uh, he, he, we traveled together an awful lot. And uh, Ricky and Robert, uh, we traveled together once in a while. And uh, Tommy and Bobby. But, you know, even though the trips were long, like I said, we were a bunch of young guys. Uh, there was that, uh, when you were in Seaport, you were at the Labasse, when you were in New Orleans, you were at the Hilton. You know, every down was a party. And that's why, you know, especially that generation of guys, a lot of people try to compare you to football teams or another sports team. I said, no, our generation, we were more like a rock and roll band than we were a sports team. It was, you know, you're on the road, different city, different country every night. I mean, there's drugs, there's booze, there's women. God, I miss the old days. <laughs> oh! <laughs> One of the so things... That's why a lot of guys got caught up in that lifestyle. Uh, a lot of guys, high divorce rate, high drug and alcoholism rate, high death rate in our business. But it was hard. You know, you're out wrestling in front of how many other, you know, hundred thousands of thousand people. How many other folks are out there? Sometimes a high school gym with 200 people in there. But then you go back to the hotel room and you're sitting there and you're watching TV. And you're like, yeah, okay, maybe I'll walk down to the bar. And some guy comes up with an eight ball. Hey, you want to bang my old lady? Here, take this. Yeah. <laughs> you can see how so many guys could get, get caught up in that. Yeah, I, I, I try and to. Ex- I did too. I can't say I, I can't throw no stones. I did a lot of drugs and I drank a lot of booze, but I uh, never had that addictive type personality. I never, never got hooked up to no. But I can't criticize anybody you did because I was right there with them. The thing that uh, that I always try to explain, I try to explain like to my wife, of of, of for sure, and other Forget people it. is, uh, <laughs> yeah, is is most people, you know, they work nine to five and they come home, they have dinner, they have a drink or something, and they were ready for bed by eleven o'clock, ten o'clock at night. In the wrestling business, you're you, you don't perform till seven thirty, eight o'clock, so you're at, you're done at ten thirty, eleven. Your adrenaline's still going, adrenaline, adrenaline is still going, so you can't. It, at least I couldn't. I always wanted to at least have a couple drinks uh, almost every night just to calm down. But it's hard just to sit up there, and, like you said, and, and turn on the TV, and, and you still got that blood flowing. And and I was just a ring announcer. Yeah, it, and, you know, understandably so. But, you know, it's just, it wasn't a job. It was a lifestyle. Right? And people, 
device revolved around wrestling, like uh, weddings. We all, everybody got married after WrestleMania back in the day because we had two weeks off after WrestleMania. Undertaker, Rotundo, and uh, my wife uh, all had kids at the same time. After <laughs> nine months after WrestleMania, I mean, uh, you, you kind of the life revolved around the business. You know, everything was important to make the show, no matter what. Make the show. Uh, you know, we, we've been in an accident. Uh, not a bad accident, but not a good, you know, more than a fender bender. My wife's like, what do we do? I said, we got, we got to make the show, man. We still got to make the show. And the, the mentality of my generation, the guys, uh, is there. And that's why you got guys, you know, getting juice. I mean, that's a, imagine that. You know, people say, oh, you guys use a blood capsule, don't you? I'm like, I wish. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's really. a razor blade, man. And you chop your own head open and bleed all over everything. Sometimes there's so much blood in the ring, you can smell the iron. I mean, it's yeah. unreal. And, and that's just, uh, and guys do that willingly to bring their fans up because that's no matter how hot the crowd is and somebody pops that juice, boom, it's a whole different level. People were going crazy. Because that was before it was sports entertainment. Sure. You know, it was dangerous walking back out to your car. If you were a heel, you walked out together, you know, like Amarillo or Lubbock. You didn't walk out there all by yourself. And a lot of times you had some action up. And that's the, the story you might know, and David, I've known you for years, but uh, the two by four. I was out in West Texas and just getting back and forth in the ring. It was crazy that people would kick. It was a little rope as a barricade, you know. People lean over the rope, they spin on you and punch you. And the deal is you just walk as fast as you could to get through the crowd. And uh, I'm sitting back in the dressing room, I'm covered with loogies and bruises. And Brody walks in and he looks at me. He goes, Doug, and he says, if you ever carry something to the ring, you carry something you can use. Forget those feather bows <laughs> and sequin robes, you know? And I look down at my seat. I'm like, well, here's a piece of wood. <laughs> and I came out yelling, waving that piece of wood. And we were like, part in the Red Sea. Then people scattered. <laughs> I got to the ring. I'm like, this is great. That's so funny because you find one anywhere, you know. I got, and then once I got where I was known for carrying the two by four, you know, I took I traveled with Jake a lot in the WWF days. We walk in the arena. I said, "Can somebody get me a two by four and find him a ten foot python?" <laughs> he had to drag that train around wherever he went. You know, I, I could find a board anywhere. Uh, yeah, I was going to mention that because when you were in WCW and on the road, I was shocked to, to, to realize that you didn't carry a two. I just assumed, why not? You carry a two by four because you have one every night. But every freaking night, it seemed like you you walked into that building and ended up with a two by four. Well, WCW, a lot of play. They, they throw them on the ring truck for me, too, you know, so they have them uh. on the ring truck. Especially Ellis there with WWF, he really took good care of me, you know, because I need right-handed two by fours, so he goes and finds them. <laughs> Did you ever not find a two by four? Was there ever a t one time? Oh yeah, you kidding? I'm going out with almost a piece of plywood. <laughs> as long as it's something wooden, I've been known to be out back breaking up his pallet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just I was. It, it always amazes me because you never brought one, and you always you always had one. And uh, how, how, did yeah, you? Well, did one time, you know, I, I was breaking. I, I broke up a pallet. And I went out to the ring and. I got this big giant splinter in my thumb, you know. I mean, that, and I went, oh, <laughs> <laughs> did you? When you originally started the gimmick, when you were driving from town to town, did you carry one then, or did you always just find one? 
Yeah, I, I carried one a lot of times. Yeah, and then when I go over to Europe, I, I take one over there because everything over there is metric. That's right. You know, so I, it, it, uh, back in the day, you know, I used to throw it up in the air and I'd spin it like a like an like army guy with uh, a drill team would use a rifle. I could do all kinds of stuff. I'd throw it up as high as I could throw it up and catch the darn thing. So it had to be three and a half feet American two by four. So I went over to Europe. Everything's metric. So my father-in-law got blessed with me this beautiful two by four case. Yeah. I took it over, and when I go over to Europe, I, I, I take that with me. Causes some concern because it looks just like a gun case, and they're like, "What do you got in there?" I'm like a two by four. They're like what? <laughs> Yeah, that must be fun to, a fun explanation of why you're bringing a two by four over to the. Yeah. Uh, but uh, well, actually, uh, that one time I had all the guys with me, Andre Hogan, and we're all going into Italy. The guy stops me, and he's like, "Hold it! What do you have in bag?" And he opens up the two by four, and he's wrapping on it, you know, like I got some drugs or something hidden in it. And he looks at me, and goes, "What do you do with board?" And well, I'm building the house over here piece by piece. <laughs> <laughs> The guy looks at me and goes, sit over there. <laughs> I'm like, oh, shit. I'm sorry. Don't rip with the customs people. No sense of humor. Yes, no, not at all. But what caused a problem, though, because all the boys, they had to wait on the bus for me because they kept me in customs for about two hours. I said, oh. So when I finally got in the bus, even under it, Duncan, keep your mouth shut. <laughs> so you had to buy the drinks that night, I'm assuming. <laughs> well, not for Andre, it go broke. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me some stories about Andre. A very popular subject on this podcast and in professional wrestling, the lore of Andre the Giant is is always fun to talk about. What do you when you have a favorite Andre story? I did, uh, a whole bunch of them, you know, because I worked as Andre as a kid. You know, I broke in in like, Dallas. And I went up to New York, and I worked for Vince McMahon at the WWWF. Right. And I was Big Jim Duggan, and I tried to dress it up my character, so I wore a long gold bathrobe to the ring. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and I was doing jobs for Patera and uh, Angelo Mosca, Hogan, Sergeant Slaughter. First time I tried to get out of the Cobra Clutch, that was my first big deal. And finally, Arnie Skolin and senior they call me in the office. Of course, everybody had big cigars back then, right? <laughs> and they're like, kid. You might have a future, but come up with something better than Big Jim and get rid of that gold bathrobe. <laughs> and we're going to send you to learn how to wrestle. I'm thinking, where the hell are they going to send us? We're going to send you to Hawaii. <laughs> they send me out to Hawaii to work for High Chief Peter Maivia. So that, that's my joke. I say, you know, I wrestled The Rock's grandfather, the High Chief Peter Maivia. Uh, we wrestled The Rock's father, Rocky Johnson. I made it to Rock and WrestleMania. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> no chance in hell, as Vince would say. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, uh, but I'm out there in Hawaii. I dress my gimmick up and I put a mask on. And I wrestle as a convict. And I was doing jobs out there for and all the top guys would go to Japan. And on the way back, I'd stop and do a show for my via and stay in Hawaii for three so, so I got to work with Andre as a kid. He kind of liked me. Later on in my career, Andre elevated me from a mid-card guy to a mid-card guy, you know, because it's first to visit giant in our business. But Big Show, Yokozuna, Don Umaga, they're like, Duggan, get your two-by-four. <laughs> get your two-by-four. <laughs> I got to wrestle every giant there is. But anyway, Andre, I think it was Saturday night, main event. He's standing in the middle of the ring, goes, I challenge anyone. 
stuck and get your two by four. <laughs> so, so I got my board and I run down there and I got my chin on Andre's belly. I'm looking up at him. I'm like, I'm not afraid of you. <laughs> and he went to grab me around the throat and his thumb hit my upper lip. And this is all on TV. And, and so my lip just fell down off my face and blood is just pouring out of my mouth. It looks like he cut my throat. It's just cascading down my chest. He's got me by the throat. He's choking me. He's choking me. He's choking me. I'm down on the ground. I feel around. Boom. I get the two by four. Boom. I hit the huge Andre the Giant between the eyes with the two by four. He goes down with a huge redwood tree. <laughs> WWF goes off the air. Me standing over Andre the Giant covered in blood with a two by four in the air. Oh, lip flipping, you know. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and that bumped me from a, a mid card guy to a main event guy. And then I, I worked. Uh, 54 nights straight with Andre. How was that? Because I know if he didn't like you, uh, sometimes it was tough, but since he liked you, was it easy? Well, yeah. He, he, he did, you know, it was a tough life for the man. I mean, he was... Uh, sure. You know, I mean, even Hogan, the flair, uh, can disguise himself. Uh, I you know people, they don't get tired of people knowing that. I put my hat on his sunglasses, you know, unless you're sitting there looking at you. But, but uh, no matter where Andre went, it was a commotion. <laughs> He's a lonely guy. Uh, you know, he sat on a toilet at break. He couldn't fit into a bathroom on the airplane. I mean, there was a. You know, he could be an irritable giant sometimes. I'll tell you. You know, uh, I get on the airplane next to a businessman. He look over at me. He said, "Hey, I had a rough day at the office." <laughs> I'd be brother. <laughs> I can tell you, I just got done with a giant. I was his nice teeth from the night before. You know, <laughs> you could be an any giant. Bloody, but thank goodness. You know, I had a good report of him. And he could be a playful giant, too. I mean, he, he, he used to knock you down and stand on your hair and pick you up. So it was a real unique way. He'd grab you by the arms and pick you up. So it was a real unique way to have your hair pulled. Of course, I'm 300 pounds back then. Yeah. <laughs> and he's standing on my hair picking me up <laughs> by wow. my arms. Yeah. Uh, but Jake used to come back to the dressing room. His hair be sticking straight up. And Jake be like, I hate when he does that. I, I hate it. <laughs> so you you brought up something I never thought of, and 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 uh, not to elaborate on it, but so on an international flight like to Japan, how does Andre the Giant go to the bathroom on an airplane? He doesn't. No, Tim uh, White told me he would uh, take a laxative before he get on a plane. I mean, it was a huge deal for Andre. You know, because there's a story I think it's about the Blackwell brothers or somebody who. You know, those huge, huge guys couldn't fit into the bathroom because they're flying to Japan and there's no way they're going to fit. In and he's like, I got to take a dump. And I was like, well, I'm sorry, sir. You know, I said, no, I'm taking a dump. I'm taking it now. So what the flight attendants did, they took, uh, I, I don't want to say Jerry Blackwell because I'm not sure who it was, but somebody right. really, really large like that. They took him back and they put the uh, trash bags on the floor in the galley, and he took the dump on the trash bag. Oh, my God. The, the, well, what are you going to do? I mean, yeah, know, I know. the flight attendants went up and down the aisle with air freshener. Adventures of flying with wrestlers. Yeah, you don't even think about stuff like that. Uh, yeah. I've been talking uh, to people. Bad, you know, bad, so. That's why I wasn't a big Japan fan. Uh, I guess it might... Uh, uh, that's uh, one of the horror stories. My three best friends in my life were all three dead. 
the only three guys I really lived with. Uh, Terry Gordy got blessed with the fabulous Freebirds. Uh, Dr. Des Steve Williams and Piper. Uh, my three best friends in all three are gone. Uh, I said it's uh, a, a tough business. Yeah, um, I think about guys like Johnny Grunge and Ted Petty uh, uh, that I was very friendly with back in the day, and, and same thing. Yeah, Ed. I know that Grunge story there. Where were we at? <laughs> you can tell it it's speaking of taking a dump you can tell it if you want to jim i'm gonna leave it up to you well we were in what sturgis i believe it was. sturgis uh, south dakota huge yep. huge motorcycle rally you know so, well, that was one thing because wcw uh if you had a motorcycle i guess if you got it to atlanta they'd bring it out to uh South Dakota, and right. the WCW rode into town like a motorcycle thing, you know? Right. We're about 100 miles out, Goldberg and Lex and everybody on the tour. So, <laughs> I forget who I was riding with. We went by, you know, in a rented Lincoln, smoking a doobie. Go ahead, fellas, have fun. But, uh, yeah, so anyway, it was a good night. Everybody's party after the show, and I guess uh, it was a grunge picked up this girl and, and took her into your room, I believe it was, which was across from our room. And yeah. anyway, it was uh, engaging in... Uh, well, say that again, because you broke up. I don't want people to miss it. <laughs> I'm trying to think of the right term that you can use. Animal in a course, I guess you would say. Yes. And... Uh, Anyway, just about, I think you were sitting in your room and just about the time you were opening the door or something, and all the guys were in the hallway over and the girl goes, oh my God. And she jumps up and she's trying to make it to the bathroom, but she's not even close and she starts spray painting the walls. <laughs> all over the walls and grunge and all the bed and... <laughs> And I'm like, well, Penns, enjoy your room, brother. <laughs> he locked that door and bolted it. Yeah, I had never, I hadn't even checked in. We were sharing a room, me and him, and uh, and he checked in first. So I was checking in, and and uh, I went to put my key in the door, and uh, and he, uh, he, it was locked, like he said, it was bolted. And uh, so I knocked on the door, and he answered the door, and he, he wouldn't let me in, and he was laughing so hard, I thought he was going to cry or puke, I don't know. And so I, I, he's trying to tell me what happened, but he's laughing so hard he can't tell me. And eventually it got out, and yeah, it was like a sprinkler. She was like it a sprinkler. <laughs> it was like a sprinkler, man. And so yeah. uh, I never, I, I got a new room, uh, needless to say. But I don't know that that story's ever been told. So uh, I don't even well, know that my wife knows that story. So uh, that's Johnny Grunge, yeah. folks. Yeah, I won't. I won't tell nobody, Ben. <laughs> Wrestler's honor. Yeah, <laughs> Wrestler's honor, right? Telephone, telegraph, telewrestling. Exactly. <laughs> Speaking of smoking a doob, as you mentioned, uh, you uh, when you first went to WWF, uh, you uh, and the Iron Sheik were driving together. It was a unique situation. You got pulled over. Um, was was that common back in '87? Because I was still a fan in '87. Was it common for the heels and the baby faces that were were, were feuding with each other to travel together, or was it just a freak uh, situation? Yeah, it was a huge taboo. Yeah, obviously. That was a huge blow to my career. Uh, I was lucky to survive it professionally. I mean, I, did a, I think it would have finished a lot of guys' careers. But I never got the momentum that I had. I think they were grooming me for world champion prior to that. You know, I went up there. I uh, was doing run-ins. I ran it at WrestleMania three. I got the 2 by 4 I had all the people in the Pontiac Silverdome here in USA. And then 
couple of weeks later, I flew into New Jersey, and the sheet came up and says, um, I have no credit card. Maybe I ride with you. I'm over 21. I should have known better, but I gave the guy a ride. Uh, he said, maybe we get some St. Pauli girl beer. <laughs> I'll never drink another St. Pauli girl beer as long as I live, I guarantee it. And anyway, so I had a little bit of weed ski, and I said, brother, you want to burn a doobie? And so we hit it, and we're going down the parkway, and I'm sipping on the beer, uh, Garden State Parkway in New Jersey, and I'm sipping on a beer. Of course, this is like in, what, WrestleMania 3, 80 what? 87. You know, 87. You know, I live in Louisiana at the time that has drive-through daiquiri huts. Yep. <laughs> so I don't even think about it. I'm sipping on the beer driving by the trooper. He sees me, pulls me over. He says, you're drinking while driving. I said, yes, sir, but I'm not drunk. I'm just sipping on a beer. He said, that's illegal in New Jersey. I'm like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> he says, uh, and says now you can smell it. I know you can smell the pot. And he says, uh, do you have anything you want to tell me about? And uh, you know, in Louisiana, you got caught. The cop would take it, you know, get out of here, you know. And right. my dad, uh, God bless him, uh, chief of police, uh, the best man I've ever met. He was the best man in my wedding, my dad, God bless him. You know, and he, you know, I always have to figure, honestly, the best policy, because they're going to find it anyway. I'm like, yes, sir, officer, there's a small amount of marijuana under my seat. <laughs> he pulls me out of the car, feet back, and spread them. <laughs> I'm like, Oh, <laughs> USA, no, nothing. <laughs> you know, so now they go to the seat. Now they're top to 20, not because there's two big guys. We have a whole bunch of police uh, troopers around us. She had a, a purse back then, a you know, gimmick purse. They open it up, there's a gram of Coke sitting right on top of it. Boom, they close it up, they hook us both up. Of course, we're on the side of the Garden State Parkway. People are driving by going, look, there's a guy in cheek and Oh, my God. And, uh, so we went, and I got a ticket for drinking while driving and uh, uh, for having less than, uh, you know, I had like three, four duties. So. And he had uh, two tickets, but the sheik, he had to go in front of a judge because he had uh, like two or three grams of cocaine in separate containers. So he was in front of the judge. But anyway... Uh, we got him out of jail, or they got bonded out, and we got back to our car. We made the show that night. Wow. <laughs> Asbury Park made the show. We went in, and we didn't tell nobody. <laughs> yeah, why would you? <laughs> you know, and I called my wife that night, and I'm like, honey, I said, we got popped, but nobody knows about it. And so I go to bed, and she called me back at like 6 o'clock in the morning. She's like, everybody knows. <laughs> everybody. <laughs> and this is long before the internet stuff. You know, my pop, God bless him, he got ambushed in his office, TV cameras. What about your kid getting arrested for drinking and cocaine and pot on the Garden State Parkway? You know, so my first call was, was to my dad. And I called my pop, and he's like, you get arrested for cocaine. I said, most all right. Got arrested for smoking marijuana. I knew Charlie get arrested for smoking that shit. You know, he, he chewed my butt a little bit, uh, obviously. But then my family, my three older, my I have three older sisters and my dad, they all rallied around me because they realized what a huge shock this was going to be to my career. I didn't quite realize; I was still kind of in shock. My next call was to Vince, and uh, never in my life have I gotten through Vince McMahon that quick. You know, usually. You know, Jim Duggan for Vince McMahon, hold please. <laughs> and you're on hold for a while. And I call up, I said, uh, Jim Duggan for Vince McMahon, click, click. And uh, remember to the day I died, I paid him what he said to me. He says, uh, I said, Jim? He said, Jim, what have you done to us? 
And I said, Vince, I'm embarrassed and ashamed. He says, turn in your tickets and go home. He took a big stack of tickets and slammed the phone down. And I went to uh, back to Louisiana, and I went nuts. Uh, but my wife uh, stuck with me. I was I went way off the deep end, chopping down trees, uh, just doing crazy things. And uh, Jake tried to smooth it over with Vince. And uh, finally Jake called me, and he's like, you're screwed. <laughs> They're not going to bring you back. So, I, I mean, I went from the penthouse to the dump house in one afternoon. I mean, it was unbelievable. What a fall from grace. Until we're talking about it 35 years later, right? Yeah. Well, I this happening. So I'm down there at the, the house. And finally, I realized I, I got to get back to work, you know, after I don't know how long it was. But I, I called uh, Dusty down at WCW. And I set a meeting up to go to Atlanta and talk with Dusty. And uh, Bruce Pritchard called me and said, don't do nothing drastic. We're going to bring you back. And eventually they brought me back. And like I said, again, they, they never really put the big gas on me. Uh, you know, they've always kept me strong. I mean, I, I can't complain. It's been a, a great word, but I don't think I ever obtained uh, the, the titles and stuff, which I didn't really work for Axel anyway, but uh, I, I would if I didn't screw up like that. And it's my screw up. Sure. How did it get out back then? Oh, who knows? It was all over. Uh, the New York Daily News uh, uh. It wasn't the front cover. It was a back cover. The whole cover. The big picture of me and the big picture of the sheet. The headlines were boozing bozos. <laughs> that was brutal, bro. It was, you know, because drinking beer, smoking pot, doing cocaine, flying down the Garden State Parkway. And I got painted with the same. They didn't say this guy got a misdemeanor. This guy got a felony, you know but the deal was the main thing was we were together. Yeah. You know, I think I could have survived the arrest if I was with anybody else. Sure. Uh, but I survived it anyway. And you could laugh about it 35 years later. So that's a, that's a, uh, well, it's, it's probably, like I said, it's uh, the most talked about arrest in wrestling history. It's kind of a trivia question, yeah. you know, and, uh, and it's not the worst thing that's ever happened to me in my life. Uh, so, uh, it's way, you know, and it's, it's been a, a great business for me, you know, David. You know, uh, so many guys hear the, the horror stories about Jake Roberts. Who, Jake's one of my best friends, or Scott Hall, uh, who I'm not really friendly with, but I get along with him okay. Or see the movie The Wrestler with that jerk much work, and I think we're all like that. You know, this has been a great business for me. I've been doing it for 40 years now. I've been with my wife for 35 years. Like I said, I never had to go to uh, rehab for booze or drugs, you know, no felony arrest. A couple misdemeanors, but it was back in the 80s. What the hell? <laughs> you've, come, you've, come out, you've come out practically unscathed in a business that scathes a lot of people. So, and congratulations. Well, yeah, I pretty broke up. Uh, that made some bad, I mean, you know, that's just one bad decision I made. But yeah, physically, I joke, I said, I'm, I'm the last of the old timers with all my uh, own body parts. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody else would get a new hip, a new shoulder. I said, Hacksaw comes in the original package. <laughs> <laughs> so you did a, it had a feud with Harley Race, and I'll never forget it as a fan. You did an ongoing thing at the Slammy Awards where you fought through the entire back of the building. Um, I got to know Harley uh, uh, pretty decently in WCW. Tell me about working with Harley. Oh. Harley is a legend of legends. I mean, so many, like their whole generation, everybody's a legend. Uh, Harley, Dusty, guys like that, they're true legends. They have Flair, Hogan, 
not sure who was it, but but anyway, uh, I got along good with her. Of course, I I knew who he was from the because uh, I I saw the transition from wrestling from high school gyms, National Guard armies, uh, Superdome, Madison Square Garden, you know. Uh, so doing the, the the high school gyms and armies, I knew of course a lot of the guys. Right. Like getting to work with him, we had a good. I got along good with her. We had fifty four. Um, I actually beat him for the king of wrestling. That's like right. Joke is, yeah. I, when I was a king, I had the, the, the cape, the crown, the flag, the board, the thumb, the tongue, the hoe, and the crossed eyes. <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, Doug, and be a little more serious in the ring. And I'm like, no, you're kidding. <laughs> I and we used to do that primetime show with Bobby and Kurt, and Bobby would go, you know, Vince, Duggan needs an eagle. You should get Duggan an eagle. I was like, Bobby, shut up. <laughs> if it's an eagle for a rib, you know, <laughs> And that Slammy Awards with Harley, though, uh, which, uh, actually, I won two Slammys that night. That was a lot of fun, that whole Slammy thing. And anyway, uh, I think it was on the best hit of the year, I went up and Harley and Bobby were up there. We have an argument. Excuse me. We have an argument. And when I do, I think Harley pushes me off camera, off through the curtain. But once we go off through the curtain, boom, they hit a tape. All that other stuff we had shot the day before. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, they took Polaroids of each segment where we were at. They matched up the, the way our clothes were torn and stuff uh, when they did cut back to us. But the majority of it was shot the, the day before, uh, which was a lot of fun. And of course, but we did one point when we fought through the whole Trump plaza, through the women's dressing room, through the cafeteria, through the hall. We went to this one room, there was like camels and donkeys, chickens and stuff. We looked out of the way, and Harley being Harley, he reaches down, he grabs a chicken by the head, starts beating me with a chicken. <laughs> of course, it kills the chicken. You know, it almost shut production down. Whoa, the chicken's dead. Oh, my God, he killed the chicken. The chicken, the chicken. We're having uh, Kentucky Fried for lunch. What's the big deal, you know? <laughs> but they almost, you know, because of Peter and everything, that he killed the chicken, and, all, all smoothed off at the end. And I got to pay him back at the end. I hit him with a giant tuna. So. <laughs> I remember that. It was, a, yeah, it was a lot of fun. It's funny. You get to be up in age and, and you can't remember what you did yesterday. But I'll never forget sitting there and somebody, I guess, Al Hayes or whoever was doing the commentary said, look, a llama. There was a llama that would, that was in the shot. I'll just, I'll yeah, never. I, I carry it. Yeah. But I was in college Why back then. Be yeah, I was in college back then, and uh, you know, I'm partaking in my own doobies, and uh, I just, I burst out laughing because it was just so random. But it, it's just one of those memories that I, that you know, I can't remember two days ago, but I can remember the the llama. Um, I was looking at your at all the different feuds you had and got to ask you about if I asked you about every single one, which would be awesome, but I'd, I'd you'd be here for a day and, and I don't want to certainly won't keep you. Uh, but so many of your few of the feuds you had with uh, you talk about legends, man, legend, legendary legends, as you said, uh, anything that sticks out to you uh, in, in your that WWF run? Well, the. The main thing, you know, like I said, I didn't have no background in wrestling. I didn't understand wrestling. I floundered. I went from, uh, like I said, uh, Texas to New York to Hawaii to Georgia to Florida to Texas to Louisiana. I still was struggling with the business, not understanding. When I got to Louisiana, they teamed me up. You were talking earlier about the Rat Pack. 
uh, Matt Bourne and DiBiase. Any of the second-generation guys are just that much more polished. Ted, Jake, Kurt Henning, Devon Erickson. Uh, Brett Owen, you know, guys who grew up in the business are just that much more polished. So teaming up with Ted, I, I learned a whole lot about wrestling from uh, DiBiase. And I, and I wrestled Ted a lot. We had a lot of battles, even though our styles don't really match up. You know, even at WrestleMania, we battled. That's, that's my old joke. I said, Ted DiBiase may be the greatest technical wrestler in the sport, but he can't fight a lick. <laughs> and when you're in there with Axel, it's a fight. <laughs> So, and that's the people say, Hacksaw, what's your favorite move? I said, I kick and punch. Uh, what are you talking about? I, I'm a brawler. I'm not a wrestler. Yeah, absolutely. You, you ended up in 94 in WCW. I was there. I remember when you came in. Um, was that sort of a culture shock after being in WWF for so long? Yeah, well, when I first got down there, they were working pretty good. They were uh, doing uh, center stage and they were doing. A lot of a lot more shows on the road because I, I was doing a nightly deal. I know Knobs and Sags, like they were on contract, and I had a, a sweet nightly deal. And they, they were doing some a lot of shows, so I was happy. Uh, I, you know, and, and people said, "Why everybody make it up?" And I, oh, it's it's wrestling. You know, that's why it's good to see another company come around. You can negotiate a little bit. And Turner offered no cut contracts, so pretty much everybody went down there. You know. And, I was down at WCW. I think it was my my third week down there. I beat stunning Steve Austin so bad he had to shave his head and change his name. <laughs> and I'm I should get a kickback on this Stone Cold. Stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, the boy, so bad he had to shave his head. <laughs> you mentioned uh, uh, a nightly deal. I, I'll never forget. Another thing I'll never forget is uh, Hockey Talk Man was there right around the same time you were. And he used to brag that he was uh, making $1,000 a night. And so uh, the booking sheet for January came out, and there was 25 dates. So I remember thinking as a, as a young kid, I was making 25 grand as a ring announcer, 30 grand. And I'm thinking, God, this guy's going to make in in one month what I'm going to make, what I make a year. And, and then, like, Two hours later, the guy quits because he didn't want to put over Johnny B. Bad. And I couldn't, still to this day, if I ever fought, talk to Honky Talk Man again, I have to try to understand what was going through his head to give up 25 grand in a month. I just kind of crazy. Just yeah. uh, when you I mentioned the. Like, I don't Yeah, you just mentioned uh, being on a nightly deal. It made me think of that. But yeah, those nightly deals were nice when we were doing 25 days a month, I'm sure. Um, yeah. In the middle of that, you uh, successfully battled kidney cancer. Um, how how was that? Was that a little uh, was that uh, tough to? I know you didn't have to go through chemo, I don't think, but was it tough to have to? You know, as a wrestler, you're always superhuman, and then you realize you're not. Well, yeah, it was a, definitely a terrifying ordeal, just not for me, but for my whole family. You know, my daughters were young at the time. I had been healthy pretty much my whole life. Uh, I was passing blood, you know, and my wife like, go to the doctor. I'm like, I just took a bad bump in the ring. And she was going to sort of went to the doctor and, uh, you know, a small town I knew him. And he comes back in and he looks me in the eye and he goes, Jim, it's cancer. Oh, my God. And I fell back into the chair. I was terrified. I was devastated. Yeah. I didn't know what to do. I put everything in perspective. You worry about work and money and all these other problems. Everything disappears. Yep. <laughs> all I wanted to do was survive so my daughters would grow up with a dad. I didn't care about wrestling. I just wanted to survive this. And uh, 
I spent a, a, a week before my surgery today. They had surgery right away, boom, the week after they found it. Uh, my daughter's room crying and praying. Uh, it's terrifying. I just, uh, like I said, learn to survive. But with uh, early detection and the grace of God, boom, they went in and uh, pulled it out of me. And I give uh, a whole lot of credit to Terry Taylor. Because uh, uh, when I found that, I just I didn't call anybody. I just went off the road, boom, fell off the map. I just went back home. And Terry kept calling me and calling me. And he's like, uh, Tell the folks, says, I'm not telling nobody. Jim, come on TV and tell the folks, share it with the Terry took me into coming back on the television. Uh, you know, all I can take it is uh, a movie about Luke Eric. Uh, you know, I'm, uh, I was out in the middle of the Yankee Stadium, and I'm standing in the middle of the ring telling folks that I'm ready to go in, and I don't know if I'm living or dying. They don't know how far the cancer has spread. They don't know nothing that they get in there. And that was uh, unbelievable, meaning... Uh, meaningful time for me. Uh, I got back through the ring, got down the aisleway, and I collapsed at the far side of the curtain. I was just uh, emotionally drained. It was crazy. And it turned out, because back then, you know, like I said before, computers, thousands of cards and letters from people, thousands of well-wishing. So we had to turn off the phone at the hospital. It was unbelievable the outpouring of support I got. Uh, and, uh, not only did I survive it, but I was blessed enough to come back to the profession I love. So uh, I tell folks, if you got something wrong, you know, go get it checked out. I just, just recently was these health issues uh, over Thanksgiving. I couldn't catch my breath. And I told my wife, I said, maybe we should go to the doctor. And she's like, no, we're going to the emergency room. And they took me in. Uh, my heart had gone into AFib. It was beating like 200 beats a minute or something crazy. And uh, they were afraid I was going to have a heart attack. They stuck me in the ICU unit. I was in there for uh, five days in the ICU. They got me out there. And they tried to you know, shock it back into uh, rhythm. It didn't work. They ended up doing a procedure called the blazing just a few weeks ago. And uh, it's got my heart back in the rhythm. But uh, so health issues, like I said, put, put everything back in perspective. But if something's wrong, go get it checked out. They can save your life. Absolutely. Great, great stuff. And I, I remember when you did that speech, that was, uh, that was one of the more emotional, if not the most emotional, uh, segment I've ever been, uh, at a wrestling show. You know, show. I felt bad because that long after that, they did the fake gimmick with Flair having a heart attack in the ring. Yeah. That kind of kicked me off. You know, yeah. they I, didn't, I thought that really, they, yeah, they, they didn't smarten me up. I thought, I, cause I was riding with Rick and Arn at the time and I thought that, uh, I thought the guy was dying. I, we had Charles Robinson on the podcast about a month ago, and he, good he, he man, Charles, good yeah, he's man. a great guy, and he didn't know either. And I, I remember I went back and looked at the tape before I interviewed Charles because I, I was pretty sure me and him were like freaking out together, and and you could see on camera we're f- look like both white in the face, look, and and I remember that, and I, I thought he was, I thought he was gone, and the whole thing was a work. Yeah, so. and I thought that, and you know, it was an angle where. It, you know, mine was from the heart. I, I really felt that it, it cheapened it for me. Uh, yeah. But of course, wrestlers, when wrestlers do, you know, this heart deal, Jay called me. He says, Duggan, you never had any rhythm anyway. How can they suck him back in the rhythm? <laughs> the nasty boy said, we'll get a hold of you by Ouija board. Wrestling <laughs> 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 humor. How, how, how do you put up with the nasty boys for so long? 
Well, everybody's got a limit, you know. Boss uh, <laughs> man had like a three-second limit, you know. He'd walk in the room, they'd be like, big fat man, hey, big fat man, how you doing, big fat man? And he'd bail out, he'd run off, you know. Hogan's <laughs> got like a three-month limit. He can put up longer than most do. Jimmy Hart's got like maybe a, a one-week limit. I, I got, I'm got i four or five days, I got to tag out. <laughs> everybody's got to. But, you know, the knobs and sacks, they pick on the youngest guy in the company, and then they go mess with Flair and Hogan. They're they're equal opportunity. You got to understand. They joke with everybody. So I appreciate that. Oh but yeah. I was, one time I, I was traveling with Knobs and Sags, and uh, Greg was traveling with Hawk, and we traded off about halfway through the trip. And after two days, I pulled up next to Greg. We're at a fast food restaurant. I pulled up next to Greg. I'm like, Greg, I'll gladly trade you one Hawk for two nasty boys. <laughs> I couldn't travel with Hawk, man. Oh my God. <laughs> Did you get the, the 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 feeling towards the end of WCW that they were trying to get you to quit, or because uh, they did oh, yeah, yeah. They, they did the janitor thing, which actually came back to kind of bite, kind of a vindication because Jimmy, I was part of that whole little crew that was running that took over Saturday night as like a junior member, and Jimmy ended up having you, if you remember correctly, finding the TV title in the in the. Right that Scott Hall had thrown out in the, as you were, you were, they gave you the janitor gimmick in a garbage can and you became like our world champ, uh, you know, on WCW Saturday night, that became like our main defending yeah, title. I was title. a TV champion. Yeah, yeah. I was a WCW TV champion. It's yeah. another trivia question. Who was the last ever WCW television champion? Cause the company went under when I had the belt. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, and there again, I mean, if they, if they give you something, embrace it. Uh, one man gang, he didn't like a keen, but he made a keen work. You know, uh, Terry Taylor, he didn't like Red Rooster, and he didn't embrace it. Red Rooster died. I mean, if Terry had really embraced it, I think he would have made it work. You know, they gave me the janitor deal. They said, you know, you got to clean Vince Russo's toilet with a toothbrush. I'm like, great. So they do the vignette. I, I poured a Diet Coke in the toilet, you know. Instead of going back, kind of squirt, you know, kind of just doing it half hearted. I got the water splashing. I came to the toilet. Oh, water splashing <laughs> everywhere, you know. What the hell? Give me my TV time. I'll get myself over, you know. And uh, then they brought me back up. I had to fly up to Atlanta for a big beat. Like, we're going to turn you against America. And I'm like, after all these years, you know, in Iraq, Iran, you know, where are we going to go with this? You're like, you're going to be part of Team Canada. <laughs> I'm like, well, we got a lot of heat with the Canadians. What are you talking about? <laughs> and of course, and they had major guns at the time, so that was a plus, too. <laughs> two pluses. <laughs> yeah, if anyway, I remember. Go ahead. But, uh, the deal was I was on the road, and I cut my hair and shaved my beard and put a suit on and went to the show that night. And guys I'd known for 20 years. Nobody had a clue who I was. I'm sitting in the dressing room. Nobody had a clue who I was. So you just embraced the insanity, huh? Yeah, well, you know, and Jimmy, uh, and as you know, you're from Jimmy. Uh, Jimmy and I used to talk about it. It's like being on the Titanic. You know the ship's going down, but you want to hang on as long as you can. <laughs> and that's a shame because, uh, you know, what a, you know, it's just that should have gone forever. But it also shows what a master McMahon is. I mean, he loses all his top people. We go down to WCW. We bump uh, Triple H, running Steve Austin and Sable. They go up to New York. He repackages them, 
after a couple of years, Butch Turner with CNN and TBS and TNT and all that stuff, puts them out of the wrestling business. It uh, says a lot about Vince McMahon, like or hate the guy. Got to respect him as a, a wrestling promoter. But you know, I think I just got to just run the fourth thing quick. I did a talk show and he's picked, just got fired from WWE and he's like, that Vince McMahon, he treats us like pieces of meat. Okay, I'm like, well, son, what the hell you think you are? You want a friend? Go buy a puppy. You know, <laughs> this is your boss. He's not your friend. He's your boss. Work for the guy. To make it our business, you're gonna have to work for the man. And sooner or later, there's a flushing sound for pretty much everybody but Taker. <laughs> yeah, exactly. How was it? How was it going into the, the the WWE Hall of Fame in 2011? I know you had your family there, and and I would imagine that meant a lot to you. Yeah, you know, you know and, and Ted put me in, DiBiase put me in, and no matter what profession you're in, to be recognized by your peers is, is something special. And, of course, you have all those fans show up for Hall of Fame. You know, you look at the uh, NFL Hall of Fame, they don't get nothing like that. The wrestling fans are, are the best fans in the world. Uh, last uh, week, I was just over in uh, Liverpool, England. After that big show we did in Detroit, the next week I was in Liverpool with Undertaker and Flair and Brett was over there and everybody. Uh, it's amazing the worldwide appeal of professional wrestling. You know, I, I do some events, uh, charity events with the NFL guys and they're like, well, we're world champions. <laughs> Where in the world do you fellas go? <laughs> well, we went to London. I'm like, that's like going to the West Coast. Come on, we went to London. In my uh, 40 plus years, I've wrestled in every state in the union. Every province in Canada, including the Northwest Territory, up above the Arctic Circle, and 30 different countries. It's, it's even hard to think of 30 countries. That's the crazy. Deal of wrestling. Yeah, just last May, we were down in uh, Christchurch, New Zealand. I took my wife with me down there for a comic con. And I said, nobody knows Tom Brady in Christchurch, but they'll go, ho! <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about Legends House. Uh, what were your initial thoughts when they contacted you? Uh, yeah, I was all for it. Uh, the only thing I was really apprehensive about was being gone for so long from a family. You know, five weeks almost was, uh, was a long time and, and having a roommate. Because I'm like, you know, I, I never had a roommate. You know, you find out when you get there who it is. And I'm like, you know, Steve, I had Doc and I had uh, Gordy, but it's been years since I had a roommate. And I get to the legend house and they're like, and your roommate with Piper. <laughs> And me and Pipe, we knew each other, but we never hung out or nothing. So we just eyeballed each other for the first three days. You know, how you doing? <laughs> Fine. How you doing? <laughs> we just eyeball each other back and forth. But uh, then we hit it off, man. And uh, we became uh, best friends. Our families, our wives, our daughters became friends. Uh, we kept in touch uh, long after that. And I always joke, I said, you know, the best deal about living with Piper is... You can get away with anything. You blame it on Piper. <laughs> <laughs> I pull any prank I want in the house, and me and Gene and Pat Batters would be like, "Hey, that, well, that Piper." Ah. <laughs> He's like, "No, it's Duggan." I'm like, "No." <laughs> and then Tony, Tony, and I almost had a fist fight. But, uh, it would have been a clash of champions at sixty plus. <laughs> but, yeah. Anyway, we got on each other's nerves. That was, I mean, it was actually came to blows. Uh, would have. Uh, we were real close, and, I, and he had trouble with Piper too. And I said, I can understand Tony Atlas having trouble with me and Roddy Piper, 
It kind of pain in the ass too, you know. <laughs> but yeah. how do you have trouble with hillbilly Jim? <laughs> <laughs> the guy's like a Buddhist monk, you know. <laughs> he does yoga, he meditates, and he he's just the one guy in the world. And Tony had trouble with him. But, but looking back at it, it added to the program with that little bit of friction. Yeah, it had to be, you know, being in a house with all those guys for five weeks had to, at some point it had to be like enough is enough. I need to go home and sleep in my own bed. Yeah, but I, I, it was like summer camp for me and Piper. I mean, you know, <laughs> they got uh, hundreds of hours of tape because everybody pretty much had their own film crew. They had hidden cameras. They had regular, so there's hundreds of, not thousands of hours of tape that are you know, because me and Piper, we have to sneak out, you know, out behind the tennis courts to engage. <laughs> and you know, McMahon probably got a camera hidden back there. We think we're sneaking around. <laughs> we got us on camera doing the up against the wall. The camera pan to the left. We'd run like hell. <laughs> I pan back up against the wall. It was like breaking out of prison. We, we, we had a lot of fun. Yeah, I don't know if you know this. In 2002, I was uh, Roddy Piper's tour manager for his book tour, and I spent uh, 40 days on a tour bus with him. So we sort of had the similar experience, and uh, yeah. he, he, we had a lot of fun with uh, with Roddy. And uh, 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 you know, he had the big room in the back, and I slept on a bunk. God bless him, though. Yeah. He's a great guy. Yeah, that joke, that shit. I'd get off the airplane, people go, "It's Hacksaw doesn't play with me." Get out of the way, Hacksaw. They pie face me to get the paper. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me a little bit about the comedy stuff that you do. I know, uh, you know, you, you've made me laugh for about an hour now, so um, I can't imagine for people who pay and get to uh, hear the whole thing. Uh, tell us a little bit about it, how it came about, and uh, a little bit about the uh, the Canada trip coming up. Well, you know, uh, Pipe was one of the first guys to start doing the stand-up, and then... Uh, no, and uh, it was somebody, I think Johnny, somebody up in New York, maybe even before Piper. But anyway, and then uh, Foley took it to another level. Mick, of course, uh, yeah. really got to take cooking. Uh, and then Jake and I started doing a few together, and then uh, we broke off uh, and doing them single. I guess uh, Dolph Ziggler's doing them now. Uh, and mine's a little different. It's uh, I tell folks, it's a positive look at professional wrestling. It's not that negative stuff. And it's family-friendly. You know, uh, Jake and I were doing them together. We did one in Zanies in Nashville, and the, the newspaper the next day said that Jake was Hustler, Duggan was Disney. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I try to keep mine, you know, family-friendly. And, of course, in the, we do a long uh, Q&A. I find even if folks aren't wrestling fans, uh, everybody's critical or uh, you know, wants to know a little bit about uh, professional wrestling it's sure. a, a unique business, and everybody's a little curious. Do you see a time ever where uh, where, where you hang it up and you don't travel anymore? Or is it just going to keep on rolling like the Energizer Bunny? Well, it, actually, it's fun at this stage. You know, like I said, we went over to London. I take my wife, Deborah. I've been with Deborah now. But we just celebrated our 30th anniversary. We've God been bless. together 30 years. And uh, my youngest daughter just graduated, so both my girls are out of college now. Uh, but yeah, I take her with me. We're going up to Canada. The first few shows are in Ottawa, uh, or Ontario, excuse me, in Ontario area around Toronto. And then we got like Montreal. And then we're going to go out to Newfoundland for a few days. My wife's never been to Newfoundland. Uh, then back over to like Edmonton, Calgary, Winnipeg, almost coast to coast of Canada. And then it's like a working vacation nowadays. You know, one of my sisters is like, Oh, you work so hard. I'm like, 
I usually go somewhere. A lot of folks are happy to see. Uh, I sit down and I tell stories that I enjoy. I, it's it's not like working in the salt mines. You know? no. And uh, now with uh, Deborah traveling with me, uh, you know, last time we were up there, we stopped at Gettysburg, went to the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, where we went up that way. Uh, just enjoying life and seeing the sights. Yeah, no more, no more taking bumps. Now, now you get the the, the payoff. I still of- go to the ring once in a while. That's a joke. People say, "Actually, are you still wrestling?" I said, "Well, I go to the ring. I don't know what we call it wrestling anymore." But I, that's what I tell the young guys. So I said, "You know, at sixty-five, I have no physical attributes left, but I can still entertain a crowd. It's more than just taking bumps. You know, you got to have a ring presence to tell a story. Guys just go out there and bump, 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 and it doesn't mean nothing." But that seems to be the way of the future. No, it's amazing. And I'm not just saying this to kiss your ass because you're on my podcast. Uh, I've tell people no matter where you go, uh, when you wrestle, whether it's against a local indie guy or against another legend, it's a very simple match. It's, uh, pretty much laid out the same and it gets freaking over from the beginning of your entrance music to the very end when you go through, back through the curtain. You're over, it's over the entire time. And, uh, it, 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 uh, it's like a, uh, it's, it's, that match. That should be a, a should be taped and should should be a must watch for any uh, for any uh, wrestler in this business uh, who goes out there and does forty seven moves in the first five minutes and uh, and you just have them you know look you have thirty years of, of credibility and success uh, to to be able to, to work off of but you, know, you have them in the palm of your hands from the time that the bell rings uh, really before that and uh, and and it's just amazing it's it, no matter where you go. Uh, what town it is? It just it, it works every single time better than the next. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, because you know I still enjoy it. You know I still have fun out there, and then I try to show that to the fans and I tell the young guys have fun out there, and that comes across to the folks, and they'll have fun with you. I mean, enjoy yourself. Guys get too nervous and work too much out there. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, Jim. First of all, congratulations on your daughter uh, graduating. And uh, I was—I did. I apologize. I was trying to text you while you were trying to celebrate. So I, I'm following the sword yeah, on that right. one. No problem. But I, I appreciate yeah, no problem. your time. Tell everybody where they could find you on on Facebook and and Twitter and all that, so they could uh, maybe yeah, come on, see you. On Twitter, Canada. it's a, it's a official hacksaw hacksaw Jim Duggan on Facebook, and I believe it's official hacksaw on Instagram also. Uh, well, I'm learning my social media. You know, like back in the day when I finally got a hundred thousand followers, I called Piper. I'm like, Pipe. I said, I got a hundred thousand followers on Twitter. I was talking, I got half a million. I'm like, I'll talk to you tomorrow, buddy. <laughs> God bless him. And God bless you, man. You're, you're uh, always treated me and my family uh, with the utmost of kindness and respect. And I'm um, so happy that you're still doing well. And uh, give my best to Deborah and the girl. Well, thanks, brother. But, you know, before you go, you got to do one with me. And Dave yeah. isn't going to hoe. Hoe like you meet it, brother. Ho! Great stuff. Hacksaw Jim Duggan. So thankful for his time. He doesn't do a lot of these anymore. Uh, he did old Dave Penzer a favor, and I am extremely grateful. Be sure to catch his comedy show, not only in Canada, where he's going to be embarking on that tour uh, very soon, but also, uh, he, like he said, he's not going to get off the road. So uh, coming to a city near you uh, in the future, be sure to check it out. He's a class act. He will treat you uh 
100% right and will tell great stories. And I promise you, you will have the time of your life, uh, none classier than Hacksaw Jim Duggan. And I thank him again. Next week, we're excited to have on the podcast Gail Kim, uh, Impact TNA Hall of Famer and seven-time Impact TNA Knockout Champion. We're going to talk to her about her career. We're going to talk about her time in WWF slash WWE. Also going to talk about being instrumental in uh, creating the knockout division in TNA, uh, her feud with Awesome Kong, also some other stuff that uh, that uh, she was involved with in Impact Wrestling. And we'll also talk to her about what she thinks about the women's evolution slash revolution, uh, which I think is something that she would have loved. I don't want to put words in her mouth. Would have loved to have been a part of, uh, you know, when she was in her prime. Really always wanted to... Uh, treat women's wrestling as equal to men. I know that from talking to her in the past, so uh, we'll explore that a little bit with Gail Kim next week. Looking forward to it and looking forward to seeing you uh, at David Penzer on Twitter, at Penzer Ringside. Until next week with Gail Kim, I'm David Penzer, still sitting ringside. Follow David Penzer on Twitter, at David Penzer. Also make sure to follow the show on Twitter at Penzer Ringside. You've been sitting ringside with David Penzer on Radio Influence. This is a dark to light with Frank and Beans quick fix on Radio Influence. We have to talk about these tough things and sometimes it's not going to be roses and, and unicorns, but it doesn't mean that all hope is lost by any stretch of the imagination. It's one of those situations where I just don't see how the side that is committing themselves to such absurdity is going to be able to survive in any kind of a meaningful way because I always say it, it's either they get outed for the crooks and the grifters and the the intellectually dishonest people that they are or they get their way and the world comes crashing down because all their ideas are so bad that there's there's really nothing else there. This is a self-correcting mechanism. This earth, our species, it's just what happens. It happens to be that we are all alive during a time where we're coming down the other the other end of the hill and there needs to be another upturn, another turnaround, another uh, replenishing. There needs to be a little bit of fight. There needs to be a little bit of struggle. And there needs to be a lot of uh, courage that, that is that is shown at this time. That's just what it comes down to. It's what is it? The what was it? The old John F. Kennedy quote. Don't. Uh, don't don't pray to to have the the burden taken off your shoulders pray to become stronger people mm. stronger man you know that's just that's just what it is this is just one of those phases you can take this template and put it over all throughout history and here we are again so it's it's all right it's all right to get angry discouraged a little bit but you got to we all have to dust ourselves off a little bit quicker than we than we're used to and get on with it at the end of the day, I think that we're going to be seeing positive change. Dark to Light with Frank and Beans can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Podcasts, and RadioInfluence.com.